As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Phil Hay Show. Hello there, welcome to the show. The Phil Hay Show is brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan. Hello with me from The Athletic is Phil Hay. Hello. And today we welcome a special guest. We'll speak to him in a minute. Football agent and Leeds fan as well, Hayden Evans. Hi, great to be here. And for a limited time, you can read and get The Athletic for just £1 a week. To read all Phil's stuff, you can find it at theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod. That's where you go to sign up. This week we have got... Uh, We've got a look into the world of Twitter for a football writer, which was a good bit of fun. We've got a big feature on the birth of Prozone, which was founded in a warehouse in Hare Hills of all places, and a bit of a look at what went wrong at Palace and um, what Bielsa might have to sort out with this team. Theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod to get signed up for just a pound a week. Right then, Hayden, welcome to the podcast. And before we get into it, I should say thanks to the lads at Leeds That, um, who did a brilliant podcast. You've done a couple with them before, um, which was excellent research for today. So I would definitely advise you look that up. Have a look for Leeds That and find Hayden's chat with them. So hopefully we won't repeat too much and you won't get all the same questions no uh, problem. chucked at you. So a little bit of an introduction, if we could, first of all, for, for who you are, what you are, what it is that you do. You're an agent. Um, your company is based in Leeds and you've got Andy Gray, former footballer who played for Leeds, who works for you. Yeah, well, Andy's actually a, a partner as opposed to working for me. I don't Do you work, it, work yeah, for him now? Yeah, just about, actually. <laughs> it started that way, but somehow he's magically reversed it. Always happens, doesn't it? And and in the past, then, clients um, include David Batty, Gary Speed. You worked with Tony Yeboah, um, some of the championship winning midfielders. Simon Grayson? Yeah, yeah, Simon, through to his managerial career. And Peter Reid, I heard you mention on the Leeds, uh, that podcast. Yeah, Reedy was fun rather than representation, <laughs> to be quite honest. But yeah, did quite a lot with Peter. And current clients for your business, then you've got um, Jamie Shack, you've got Ollie Casey, Ryan Edmondson, and then there's some in the younger age group. Yeah, they're, they're the Leeds-based players, but obviously the the network's wider than that. But yeah, yeah, they're, um, they're the ones we're most excited about because we're Leeds fans. Now, Phil, we haven't talked about Palace yet. We're going to do that kind of properly next week but I guess it's a good jump off point isn't it to, to talk about the, the state of play at Leeds now where we are and where we hope to be so what do you think of the season so far then Hayden? Yeah I mean I'm encouraged by it to be honest and I think um, the last two defeats are hard to take whatever your situation is you don't like to see your team beaten but I think I think there's a lot of um, excuses if you want to use that for the not just the performances because I, I, don't, I don't think there's a lot of criticism levelled at actual performance level 
for me, I've just put it into perspective that I trust in Bielsa completely. I trust Victor Orta as well. I think he's probably one of the top two, three recruiters in the world, not just England. And I think, you know, they reinforced that side with certain signings, which was not squad enhancements, really, realistically, you know, first team improvements. And we went into that Palace game without three of those and Calvin. So it was nigh on impossible for me to get a decent result there. And plus, I think Roy, Roy Hodge, I've dealt with him before in the past. And, you know, he's wily. He, he's one of the best tactical gaffers out there. So I think that whole, all the circumstances leading into that game, for me, I, I think it was pretty inevitable we were going to get beaten. I, I think, think as well, some of that led to just little tactical issues like the, the man marking wasn't quite as tight as it normally is um, with Bielsa. And because of that, you, you start to see what the margins are like in the Premier League and how small the errors have to be for you to, to get caught out. Even the deflection for the third goal, I was watching it back and and you see just for a split second, Costa pausing um, as Van Aanholt goes round him um, on the left-hand side. And and that little moment is enough to give Van Aanholt the, the time he needs to cross from the left and, and for the ball to, to deflect in. And, and it was just little bits like that that don't work. And Bielsa always says himself, when when it doesn't work as it's supposed to, you have a problem because it does all need to, to be perfect from, from front to back. But you're talking about good established Premier League teams here. So like we've, we've been saying all the way through the season, it, it didn't feel like... Um, it didn't feel like a disaster down there at all. The problem with Leeds fans is, as, as a as a breed, we kind of generally swing between it being the best time in the world or everything is collapsing around our ears. But actually, it is fine margins and little things can turn and, and it's probably all fine. Uh, what about Pablo, though? That was the big talking point that emerged out of, of Crystal Palace, the fact that, that he was left out after the, the disciplinary issue, kicking the water bottles and throwing the armband uh, against Leicester. I think, I think we'd probably like to get your insight into this Hayden from, from an agent's point of view about how you manage a situation like that have you faced anything similar to that before yeah I have the one most similar to that is is Tony Yeboah when he took his lead shirt off and threw it at George Graham but very very different in that George Graham had a personal agenda and tried to put a spin on it to turn the Leeds fans against Yeboah by saying that it's a disgrace for him to take that shirt off and throw it on the floor our position as agents to that player with, a, with Tony he wasn't in a position really to say too much without getting fined or whatever else so we took it upon ourselves to, to actually ironically Phil speak to the Yorkshire Post and the Yorkshire Evening Post and say look do you want a full back page because I think it's about time we dispelled all the myths that have been created around Tony by George Graham so we we sort of fought back hard you know and and you know, and that relationship finished, the whole thing finished that, that particular week because of the, the actions that everybody took. With Pablo, I think it's it's different from two aspects. One, Pablo doesn't seem to be as volatile as Tony ever was. I think, you know, he's measured, you know, and, and he's a, an excellent pro, which, which Tony was a good pro. But then we've got two completely different managers. For Bielsa, there's no personal agenda. He's not interested in any of that nonsense it's something that happened and, and I think for him it will be forgotten. I, I don't think there's this, right, I'm going to be vindictive now because of that tantrum. I, I just don't believe that for one minute. I think with, with Pablo as well, I mean, he's shown his regret, but when you're a player that sets the bar as high as he does and deep down you know you've had a bad 45 minutes, however long he'd been on that park, he knew himself. He didn't need anybody telling him that, that he wasn't up to his own standard. Then to be dragged off, 
you know, it's just it's just human reaction. I think I, I think it was overplayed a bit. I was saying last week that at his age as well, thirty five, you, you'll realise that your Premier League games are not going to come around for too much longer, and there probably will be that kind of underlying desperation on his part to play well, to be part of the team, to be a first choice player, which at, at the moment he isn't. When when Rodrigo's fit, it, it's probably worth saying that. Bielsa didn't really expand at all on the decision itself and from what I'm told I don't think he really communicated much about it to anybody at the club either before the decision was taken including Hernandez which isn't a surprise because I mean he doesn't tend to seek validation for what he wants to do with the team it is always his decision and he sees the team as as his to to run um, as as he thinks is, is the right way to do it's safe to assume though isn't it that it relates to to what happened against Leicester, either the black armband or or the bottle kick. I, I don't think Bielsa would have seen either of them at the time because Hernandez was on the other side of the pitch when the armband was thrown. He was behind Bielsa with his back turned to him when he kicked the bottle. So evidently, in the days after that, whether it's been Hernandez' demeanour in training or whatever else, something has convinced Bielsa not to take him. And, you know, it was his prerogative to say, I don't want to explain this decision or to say, you know, I picked the 18 that was most apt. I think equally it was our prerogative to say that that's not totally credible and so when you've got Hernandez back in Leeds and you're struggling down at Selhurst Park, he would have been in the squad on on any given weekend. But because it's a kind of isolated incident and because I don't think any of us expect it to fester and it would seem to me to be a bit of dereliction of duty on all sides if at the end of this fortnight it hadn't been sorted out. How much would an agent get involved in this? I mean, clearly you would speak to the player to find out what was going on. But do you think this is one of those circumstances where you leave the club and the player to, to settle it themselves? Absolutely, yeah. I think... Yeah, I gave that one example of Tony. It's probably the only time in 30 years of the agency that we've ever forcibly acted on behalf of a player in the public domain. So what we tend to do, even with our youngest players, is look, if you've got issues that, that are on-field issues with a manager in particular, you've got to show some balls, even as a young kid, and you go knock on the door. Mm-hmm. Don't expect... You, plenty of agents will go banging on the doors because, I don't know, do they see it as part of the job or is it a little bit of bravado from them? But the way we've always been and the way Andy certainly is, is, you know, we sit with the player and say, listen, everything you've just said, you now need to go in and speak to the manager about because, you know, it's your career. It, it's your relationship with him, not ours, you know? So, so no, we, we wouldn't, with the Pablo thing, definitely we wouldn't have had any involvement, you know, trying to make sure our player is happy and takes the right route and he's, he's comfortable at the end of it. When you look at Bielsa and George Graham, both very much kind of top dog in their organisation, but how do they differ then in, in how you would approach this this sort of thing? Because you don't seem to have a very favourable opinion of George Graham. No, I haven't. I think uh, the differences between the two are, are absolutely clear. George was all about him. And uh, other than Arsenal, never about the club that he was employed and paid by. We were just a northern stepping stone at the time, which proved right. He moved down back to London pretty much as immediately that he could. I think with Bielsa, it's all about the club that employs him. More than that, I, I certainly believe that it's about the city that he's working in, the people that are coming to the club. You know, I, I think they're totally different people. Thinking about um, Yeboah, you described him as volatile, which brought a smile to my face. And You sort of shy away from players like that these days, don't you? You've got a type which is more steady, professional. Think sort of James Milner and you look at Jamie Shackleton and you can see the the green shoots of a player like that coming through. Yeah. Again, you know, trying not to sort of publicise the agency, but but we've we've sort of been known over the years for that type of player. You know, going from from a speedo to bats to 
to Sharks to the, you know, a, a manager's player. So yeah, it's nice to get uh, fans on side loving your players or whatever. It's actually more important for their career that they're seen as good pros that every manager would want a seven or an eight out of ten every week, no real problems. So we've had a few that were different to that. It's a different lifestyle, isn't it, between having, say, David Batty or Gary Speed or Yeboa players at that level who, I guess, on randomly at 10 o'clock at night, you could get a phone call saying they're on the back page of the Daily Mail tomorrow, they've, they've done this, they've done that. They're real frontline professionals and, and really high profile. To having your lower level players like Jamie Shackleton, Casey Edmonton, who are coming through and mm. who with the best will, the world, best will in the world at the moment are, are unlikely to be back page splashes to cause you a lot of grief or to, you know, a lot of stress as an agent. So it must be quite, quite different depending on who you're dealing with. Yeah, it is. I suppose like the extreme example at one time, we, we were working with another agent in Leeds that jointly representing uh, Stephen Island from time to time. And, you know, that was just, that was the absolute extreme. You know, because you would be expecting something every three days, one way or another, there'd be some PR disaster. And yet he was absolutely one of the best players you could ever want in a team. You know, when he was on song, when he was on fire, what a player. But yeah, you had you had that other side to it. I think the time will come for, for, for Shaxx, mm. I believe in Ryan and certainly Oli Casey, who's got a real bright future. So, you know, for them, the big, Difference, I suppose, when you talk about some of the more volatile players is family and, and background and upbringing. There's more responsibility and more emphasis on the parents bringing those kids up right from 14 to 17, 18. If they've done that, then you tend not to have too many problems. Just before we move on from Hernandez completely, I, I was thinking as I was driving here about the, the situation in 2004 where obviously you had David Batty as part of your agency. And he was ostracised completely from the first-team squad towards the end of the season where they went down. Eddie Gray's first-team squad, I think, from about February onwards, didn't play, was told he, he wasn't going to be involved at all. How did you deal with that? And how complicated a situation was that to resolve or to handle, given that it was it was so high-profile and it was so messy? I think because we had an insight into the workings of the club and because we'd worked for the club as well, not just for individual players, the writing was on the wall in that... David was the highest paid player. He wasn't on appearance money. He wasn't on incentives. It was a typical David Batley contract because it's the way he wants it. I, I want my money. I'd have it weekly in cash if I could, but I, I don't want any fancy frills. So he was costing the club a lot of money. Now, what happened was he willingly took injections into a broken foot. So every time he kicked the ball, the bones were getting shattered. You know, it's as simple as that. And he voluntarily decided to keep doing that. And then it all broke out, really, where Peter Ridsdale was doing a supporters club appearance, whatever you want to talk about. And one of the guys had got a tape recorder and taped uh, a particular message that he was putting out that uh, the problem we've got with David is his injuries are so serious, we can't play him. It's not about football. It's a shame, but we think his career's finished. Now, that wasn't a medical fact. So we got involved by challenging the club to say, OK, if, if he's medically finished, it's very straightforward. He's got personal accident insurance. You've got insurance. Put the insurance claim in. Because if you don't do that, you know it's because he isn't medically finished and he wants to play. And at one point, David was even uttering, I'll play for nothing. If it's about money. I want to see the rest of my time out and I'll play. 
because that's all all Bats ever wanted to do, wherever it was. Yes, hopefully Leeds United. He just wanted to kick a ball. It's pretty pure and simple Mm. with him. And the club were affronted by the fact that we weren't going to go quietly. I mean, nobody expected Bats to go quietly. Um, Until he retired, at (laughs) which point he did. Yeah. I mean, Eddie, Eddie was really good about it, I have to say. You know, he was apologetic. He was put in a very, very difficult position. So I know that David has got no, he, he ranted and raved. You know, he, when we talk about players having the balls to say their piece, we didn't need to encourage David. So he was knocking doors down every day and, you know, having a row with, with Eddie, all the rest of it. But he acknowledges as well that, you know, Eddie was in an impossible position at that mm-hmm. time. So it was politics, unfortunately. And was money at the root of that, I guess, at the time? Yeah, I think it was. I think, you know, I can't see any other reason because he wasn't, you know, he, he was just typical. He, he was maybe poor by David's standards, getting a seven or an eight out of 10 instead of a nine out of 10 every week. But it wasn't this dramatic drop off the edge of a cliff in performances. There's a huge mystique surrounding David Batty. It's reached sort of mythical levels now <laughs> since he's retired. I mean, do you know what he's up to these yeah, days? Yeah, just, yeah. Just killing time on the East Coast? Yeah, I'm in touch with David all the time. Yeah, he's, yeah he, well, he's moved, he's moved further towards Leeds a little bit now. So he's, he's off the coast thing. No, it, it's family time for David and it always was. You know, at sort of 28, he decided at 35, you make sure that, you know, I'm getting the best contracts I could get. I'll play at the highest level I can get and uh, I'll look after my money. And he had no intentions of sort of continuing in the game or doing anything like that. So, yeah, motorbikes is his big passion, always was. Family and that's it. But he's loving life. I mean, from time to time, I'll get in touch with Hayden and say, look, we're doing a feature for the 25th anniversary of the title win in 92 or, you know, the the centenary. Is there any chance of speaking to David? And you'll always say to me, look, I will ask. I promise you, I will go and ask, but he won't do it. You know, 100% won't do it. So just sort of prepare yourself for it. Do you think what went on in his career, so the title win at Leeds, Blackburn, everything else, England career, do you think it means anything to him now? Do you think he cares about it or has he just moved on completely? Because it seems as if he left everything behind as soon as he retired. Yeah, I I think it means something in that his dad's got his shirts and medals and so, you know, it's something that he knows his family are proud of. And I think David, in a way, could take it or leave it in terms of history or achievement and without putting words in his mouth, I think it it was sort of a means to an end, really. Mm -hmm. He knew he was good at playing football when he was a kid. And all he ever wanted to do was kick a ball about on a park. And then the second part of that was it earned him enough money to pack in at 35 and, and you know, live the life he wants. So What a life. What yeah, a life. yeah, exactly. What a life. Just going back to when he left Leeds, that was, I mean, you'll know, and I heard you describe it on the Leeds, that podcast is really, really difficult. Probably one of the most difficult things you've had to do as an agent, because obviously you've got your fans hat on as well, to see one of the club's sons sold. And you said on that podcast that, one thing David had always done was was to say, look, I'll stay at Leeds for as long as they want me, but if they ever don't want me, I'll just go. I'll just pack up and I will leave without kicking up a fuss. And is that the way it planned out? Can can you tell us why he was sold? Yeah, it was it's again the fine you know, as usual, it seems cyclical. You know, hopefully it won't be anymore. But it, if you think so I I've been an agent for thirty years. So if you relate that to Leeds United in the last thirty years, there's been at least three occasions that I've been involved in players that I've loved to what not forget represent, love to watch in a lead shirt, then getting the call that we're gonna have to cash in. You know, and that's happened in three different regimes. So so it was just one of those. It, it was just inevitable that David and a few others 
would have to go. Who were the players? Hayden, David, presumably. Um, David, Gary, uh-huh. Woody. They're three distinct situations that um, money was needed, and they were the ones that had to go. The Woodgate situation, you weren't actually representing him at the time, I don't think, were you? No, no. But you happened to have contacts at Newcastle and Leeds were saying, look, we need, there was six or seven million quid to keep the club afloat in the next couple of weeks. And you sort of, you know, light bulb went off, mentioned it to Freddie Shepard. Freddie Shepard said, right, well, we'll do a deal. But he did it through you. He didn't actually, they didn't go through the clubs, did they? Yeah, yeah well, again, <laughs> our friend Peter Ridsdale, I get a great mention in his book because he names me as the demise for not the goldfish, but Baden Evans selling Woodgate or whatever, which, you know, it's complete bollocks. I mean, what actually happened was uh, I was working uh, as a consultant for Alan Layton, who was non-exec, and he was getting concerned about the way the finances were, go- were going and literally got a call saying, this is unbelievable, but if we don't raise £5 million within the next four weeks, this club's gone. It was as black and white as that. And he said, we're, we're, we're just, every time we're asking what's saleable, what, what can we get? Because the only asset we've got now uh, is the squad and we need to raise £5 million. But all I'm getting from other people at the club is very difficult. It's a difficult market. We can't find any buyers. I'd been doing stuff with Newcastle for quite some time. Freddie had said all along that he, he liked Woodgate. So it was one of those simple things. But I needed to know first and foremost that Jonathan and his family would be comfortable. So believe it or not, there are some morals involved. And we were at an England game and Woody's father was behind me. I spoke to Woody's father and said, listen, in principle, if he was to go, how would he feel about going to Newcastle? And his father said, we'd be very comfortable with that. At that point, I spoke to Freddie, added two million on for the club. I said, look, it'll have to be seven million, Freddie. It'll have to be on the nose and it'll be after on the day. And if you're happy to do that, I'll put you in touch with Alan Layton and co and you do the deal. And the rest happens. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Regarding Gary Speed, obviously a really traumatic event for Gary's family. You were right at the coalface on that day. What have you taken from that whole experience as a presume it's been some sort of a very rich learning experience given the, the magnitude of what happened. Yeah, I, th- I think um, it definitely changed. It changed me. It's changed me as a person. I'm certainly not as callous anymore and as um, alpha male about younger players having issues. And uh, over the years, I've got to work with a lot of like-minded people now, like Stevie Ward at Mentality, who's doing a, a, a fantastic job of mental health awareness. Uh, it's something that we sort of, we integrate now into our representation. You know, we actually, um, all our players, if they want to be, are seen by somebody who is not just a, a fitness guru, but also mental health awareness. So big on my agenda, really. Before Gary, just wasn't aware of it at all. You know, just, just pretty carefree. It'd be get a grip of yourself, go see the gaffer. The gaffer would say the same, sort yourself out what you're talking about it was that type of 
attitude. And, and I think the only disappointment for me, as much as they continue to talk about it, is the lack of involvement, true involvement, that the PFA had since that point. They talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. And and it's down to people like mentality. It's down to individual clubs. It's down to players and agents. And plenty of agents have taken real, really good, responsible roles, the bigger agencies. So, yeah, it's changed my whole outlook, to be honest, on mental health issues. I, I was in total denial. I sat there well-documented saying, no, Gary Speed was not depressed. What is all this nonsense about depression? As if I knew, you know, now I realise that you're not in a position to say publicly that somebody's not depressed or they are. We spoke about this for the centenary piece I did um, last October and you were talking about how on a Sunday you go to the Red Lion, I think it was. Is that right with, with Gary? You'd have Sunday lunch there yeah, yeah. and you'd, you'd spend all afternoon and you'd sing songs and everything else and it just wasn't apparent at all. Do you look back now and think there were points where people could have intervened or, or do you think at the time... It just wasn't obvious enough for, for things. To, because, I mean, the, the really sad story about Gary is that even though he was a hugely talented player, he didn't seem to appreciate the fact that people rated him as a footballer. He didn't seem to appreciate the fact that he was that good, that, that people thought really highly of him. And I know this isn't how it works, but you you look back now and you think you, you wish you wish he'd known, you know, you wish he'd known what people really, really thought of him. Yeah, I, th- I think that's the thing. I think, I suppose, you know, if you go deep into it, and, and I'm sure they psychoanalysis people would say yeah these were the points I think a part of his insecurity was reflected in the fact that he never thought he was as good as he was but I don't think that was yeah he was humble and all the rest of it but I think that was an element of insecurity and I think now knowing what we all know you would identify that insecure for somebody to be as talented as that and yet be insecure there's something else going off in their head and that's where we would have picked up but at the time Hannah and James, my my twins, who were eighteen, you know, they, they doted on Gary, you know, and uh, and he gave all the time in the world to them. He'd come watch junior football when, when my son was playing. He lived life to the full and played and managed magnificently. So there were no cracks there. You know, there were no actual cracks. You know, it, it, there was never a quiet moment. You know, if if all my memories of Gary are grateful, you know, our fa- family holidays, everything we ever did was fun mm-hmm. and he always had a smile on his face so that's the real difficult thing to live with for us even more so for Roger and Carol his mum and dad because they're living their lives every day still wondering what if this or what if that I still don't think people properly appreciate the amount of pressure players are under and actually I think the kind of focus on what players earn has probably never been less relevant because it's a really stressful profession and I think there's probably a lot of ways in which professional football isn't that enjoyable you know the I, I often used to think you know I, I write about players every day and, and often used to think what what it must be like to to be written about every day to be scrutinized every day and to have to have your name everywhere all the time to be focus of attention you you're exposed to things on on social media now that that you never were before and and I can imagine that while there are a lot of players who really enjoy their careers and really enjoy football there are probably quite a lot who find it difficult and actually find that regardless of how much they're getting paid and how comfortable they are, it doesn't make them that happy. And and I, I still don't feel as if people have, have cottoned on to that now. I, I think everybody is still inclined to see football as this phenomenal career, which is a, a massive gift. And in, in a lot of ways it is, but I think it's far more complex than that. Yeah, I, so do I. I mean, I mean, I think, you know, when you talk about the, sort of the, the pressures that come under and mental health 
awareness. It's the whole spectrum as well, remember, Phil. It's like kids getting released at 16, 17 that have been actually at a club, committed, dedicating themselves since they were eight, being called in for 10 minutes and told, we don't want you anymore. So it's the two spectrums. It's the, it's the guys right at the top that are getting all the attention, which is difficult for some of them. You know, there's no question about that. Because remember, they're still relatively young men. These are people who are mid-twenties getting this huge attention to every aspect of their life. But similarly, the bottom end of the scale. And that's where a lot more care needs to be taken. Uh, I think there's a lot more work needs to be done in looking after these kids that are released. Because, you know, we, we see some of the heartache. I mean, and I'm hypocritical in a way because, you know, we're saying... Andy and I are saying we only want to pick the elite. We only w- want to ultimately represent those who have got a chance of making it to the Premier League because that's how we make our money, mm-hmm. you know. But by the same token, you've got to have a duty of care to those that haven't made it or don't make it. And I think there's a lot of counselling needs to be done and it sounds pretty boring, but at the youngest age, some of these kids are 15 and 16 and the whole life up to that point has been no mates, no games on a Sunday league, you know, playing with the with the mates, not allowed to play school football even. You have to dedicate yourself to this club and this academy. Your parents have to drive you around all over the place, make huge sacrifices, and then suddenly it's half an hour. I'm sorry, it's all over. You know, and, and that's that's the other aspect of pressure, that, uh, and that's at such a young age. There's nothing like sport either, I don't think, for people not being allowed a, a poor day at a day off in most professions you can get away with having a lazy week or a day where you you kind of phone it in a bit I mean over the years I've I've turned in my my share of shit or lazy articles and generally they they just float under the radar because you're knackered or for whatever reason but it comes with football that you're expected to be right on it all the time and, and I do sometimes look at players who who have bad games or, or have bad periods and think it, it probably is just upstairs with them they're probably either mentally exhausted or physically exhausted and just it just isn't clicking for them, and unfortunately, you're you're on show. And, and as I say, I, I know a lot of players get paid a lot of money for that, but I think it comes back to the the fact, as with Gary, is a, a great example that it doesn't that money doesn't make you happy if you're not inherently happy anyway. No, you're right. We're not going to get any degree of sympathy from the general public and, and fans at large because you know the money, you're the extremes now. You know, and the differences and, and, and the fact that, you know, the working class man, the normal punter now is so far away mm-hmm. from the people he's watching for 90 minutes that, you know, any degree of sympathy is out of the window. And, and that's because the industry as a whole has moved so far away from the fans, unfortunately. So, we're, we're, you know, in a way that the, the, if we talk about the bats and the speedos and people like that, even Vinny, you know, and... and you know, they, they were always approachable and yet they were earning so much more money, relatively speaking, than, than the fans. I think, you know, the, the gap was there even then. But attitudes were different. They could go on a Saturday night and go to Majestics or go wherever, carry on, get absolutely pissed and then recover in time for Monday and there'd be no problem. Now it's uh, such a fine line, not in terms of behaviour, but personal performance and fitness there's there's so much more importance now on them maintaining a really high level of fitness and their body that they don't do that anymore so that's not them not wanting to be with the fans that's them knowing they've got a really short career 
they've got to excel at all times and they've got to be ready and fit. So, you know, yeah, of course they go and enjoy themselves from time to time, but not as often as they used to do. But the, but they're more at risk as well from camera phones and, and other yeah. things. You were talking about Peter Ridsdale being recorded, you know, the conversation about Batty and that at the time would have been quite unusual to have caught somebody yeah. in those circumstances. Whereas these days it's never been easier to compromise yourself and, and cause yourself a problem. Are you in favour of players like Jamie, like Ryan, Ollie Casey, being on social media, having social media profiles? Because it feels as if everybody needs to and players feel compelled to do that. But there are plenty of times where I look at it and think it might actually be easier for you if you didn't. Like for your own well-being and, and your own sort of mental health, it might be easier if you weren't on there. Yeah, I think, I think obviously I'm an old fart really. <laughs> so, so, yeah. so, so for me... I'd love clubs to just ban social media for all players, you know, but we're living in that world that, that, you know, that's clearly not practical. Also, these are, these are young guys, you know, so, so forget that they're footballers. Socially, they feel a need to have Twitter, Insta, you know, whatever. I think the problem is them understanding and educating them into what can go on there as a professional footballer and what can't. You know, you're not Joe Publi and you've got to be careful. And I think a lot of clubs are doing a lot of work. Le- Leeds, I know, are, you know, they have social media education sessions and all the rest of it. So, uh, yeah, I think they've got to be very, very careful. I- I'd love it if it was banned. Well, Simon Grayson did ban it, didn't he? Do you remember in 2011, we were on tour up in Scotland and they were doing uh, doing a fans forum on a, a Friday night in Stirling and it was a bit fractious and it was a bit volatile because... They hadn't signed many players. The squad was looking weak. They'd missed out on the playoffs the previous season. And um, there was all sorts going on. But then towards the end, somebody said to, to Simon, he said, oh, David Somers had his, um, he's had this knee injury. What's going on with him? Is he, is he fit? Simon said, um, oh, well, we still haven't got the results yet. You know, we're waiting for it to come back. So we're not entirely sure. To which somebody at the back of the room said, oh, well, he's just tweeted to say that he's out for six months with an ACL. <laughs> and the, the, first, um, the first thing that happened after that was obviously... Summer got a massive bollocking, but then Grayson did ban everybody from social media. But I remember a lot of the players being unhappy about that and actually finding it quite difficult to stick to and quite difficult to abide by the rules. And as soon as Simon went midway through the 2011-12 season, it was almost as if a, a switch was flicked overnight. You know, he left, suddenly the club said, right, everybody can go back onto social media and the players did and, and piled back on. So it's obviously quite difficult to, to leave it alone, as I guess it would be at that age. I think it'd be impossible, wouldn't it, now? You'd have all sorts of uh, freedom of speech issues. <laughs> uh, so, so uh, yeah, it, it's impossible. Clubs just have to try and manage it. And you've always got the problem that you've got such a range of characters at any one squad that there's always going to be the one that lets himself down on social media, always. Do you, do you monitor it? You know, with Jamie and Ollie and, and Ryan and your other clients, do you keep an eye on what they're doing and do you pull them up on things from time to time? Yeah, and to, say, yeah to a certain extent. You know, it, it, it's it's only like, seeing them hang around with the wrong people. You've from time to time got to, to just have a word and say, listen, this isn't right. Because again, that's the other, not pressure, that's the wrong word, but, but the other disadvantage of becoming a fairly successful footballer, so I'm not talking about the top level even, but mid-championship and above with the wages that come, is that suddenly you've got everyone wanting a piece of that action. So everyone's wanting to sell you something. Everyone's got a better car that they can get you at a better price. They wear this brand of clothing for us. We'll give you some free gear with it. And it, they're inundated with that. And the, the issue with that is that it takes their focus away from what they should be doing. And that's keeping fit and playing football. 
This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Speaking of Simon Grayson, you were looking after him at the time when he was at Leeds. And am I right that you were looking after Neil Warnock as well with that with that whole transition? Were you involved around that time? Yeah, I was. But no, I did. I've never looked after Neil. I think that stemmed from I employed his son, James Warnock. Neil rang me when he was at Sheffield United, who I'd done lots of business with, uh, and we got on. And he'd, uh, he'd basically asked me to give a job or give an opportunity to his son who'd come out of uni. He'd got an opportunity to work at Sheffield United, but Neil wanted his him to see the other side of the fence so we sort of had words about that actually it's a little bit different you know because I felt that he'd stabbed Simon in the back to a certain extent you know and Simon was most definitely my client we sort of got over it you know eventually but but um, Neil as you've seen he has a way of getting these jobs and his way is to basically talk nicely to the owners uh, you know, so so whether there's an incumbent manager, it don't make any difference. You know, I think um, Neil's the character that he is, and I, th- I think owners will always believe that there's possibly something Neil can do for them. And you know, it was just unfortunate at the time. What was Simon's feeling when he got sacked? I don't mean whether he was disappointed because he clearly was, but did he feel it had run its course at that point? I know he was aggrieved about some of what was going on above him and everything else, but the team was out of form. They'd lost a lot of players who were key players. It, it, it wasn't the same attacking unit that it'd been in his first season in the Championship. Did he feel that it was sort of coming to the end of the line? Could he Could he feel it coming? I, I think only because decisions were being made that weren't decisions that he wanted to be made. Transfers that were promised didn't develop. Moreover, players were sold from under him. So that happens practically to every manager at some point in their, in their term at mm. any club for whatever reason, results start to go against you and then the owners or someone feel they know better than the manager about who should be playing, who should should not. So they love to interfere by walking down the tunnel and into the dressing room and saying, you pick this one, that one. So the other way of doing that is to sit, make some moves away from the manager by selling players from under him. So I still believe, I mean, it's fantastic where we are now and, and at the end of the day, I couldn't want for anything better for our club. But... I do still feel that at the time, you know, had had Simon been given just that little bit of fact, he, he'll talk about himself and it's up to him to do that. But had he been given the, the type of finances he wanted, which wasn't much at all, and the few tweaks that he was wanting to put in place, particularly in one of the January windows, it would have been a totally different story. I, I don't think Simon as a manager let the club down for one second. It still feels, even now, and, and I'd include the Gary Monk season in this, like the closest Leeds had, had been to, I suppose with the exception of the Kevin Blackwell season where they, they got to the playoff final, the closest Leeds had ever been to, to properly touching promotion was the 2010-11 the season when it did feel like it, it was right there. 
what now for Simon then? I mean, do you see him as somebody, because he's, he's been in with TalkSport and he's kind of branched out a little bit. Do you think managers get sick of it eventually? Do you think coaches get sick of it eventually? Or, or do you find a, a divide between those who will do it forever, as I suspect Bielsa will, and those who eventually come to a point where they realise there are other things in life and they'd yeah. rather, rather move on a bit? I think they've got to be pragmatic. I mean, I, I would say with Simon, I don't represent Simon anymore. Okay. I mean, we, you know, we, we're still best of mates, but there was a time where he wanted more media work and that's not something that we ever get involved in really, not that much. And he had a good friend who worked for Rio Ferdinand's agency. It was about the time of the Sunderland situation. I was doing, apart from agency work, we, we do like club acquisition work. So we had an insight into exactly what was going to happen at Sunderland because we'd been asked to try and sell the club. And uh, I was trying to tell Simon that everything he was being told by the chief exec at the time was absolute crap and that none of the promises that were being made to him would be fulfilled. And, you know, it's not, it wasn't something that I, I recommended and he wanted more media work. So we agreed with the agent. We all sat down together and said, look, this is the time where our friendship should continue, but your actual representation should be with them now, a uh, new era, who are good. You know, they are good. And they took over that career move from that point on. So, yeah, but certainly I think Simon got to the point where he was just drained. After that Sunderland situation, you know, it's like, you know, how many more times is this going to happen to me? And he was drained by it. Just talking about the kind of club acquisition side of things, what did you make of GFH from that perspective? And did you have any dealings with them and, and, and Bates who went before them? I'm just kind of keen to get a sense of what you felt like around that time. Um, I'm just trying to think how much I can, I can't say. So, <laughs> so yeah, I was aware of everything in that we were introducing the club to an alternative purchaser at that time. And we set up meetings in London, everything everything looked to be going quite well. And ironically, those are the people that now own Sheffield United. So I think they just, they picked the wrong Middle Eastern consortium, however you want to name it. It's one of those things. And, and, and it, it just became apparent really quickly, immediately after the purchase just the way individuals were positioning themselves with pictures of scarves held above their heads and people who clearly had no knowledge of football, talking football. Yeah, they were talking football to me. We were getting DMs and from Patel and I famously went and met him for a coffee just to suss him out, you know, size him up or whatever. And he was asking me about, well, he wasn't asking me about, I ended up telling him about the academy system and the elite uh, player performance plan and, Alarm bells rang, but you thought, well, okay, they're fairly new to it. They've got a finance background. Maybe they just need to suss this out. And I think it's fairly clear that they never really did. No. Even allowing for Chilino, the, the most inept regime I've, I've ever seen, I still don't understand how most of them got anywhere near the football club. I don't. And, and there didn't seem to be any effort on their part. Okay, they, they appointed McDermott and, you know, the playing squad and, and everything else, but there didn't seem to be any effort on their part to construct a board or a, a management team that had any football expertise or any like acumen about the, the game at all. And, and it would be hard to think of one positive thing that GFH did to Ellen Road. I think the only thing they could come up with was that they formed an official club Twitter account. And that was that <laughs> was pretty much a, about it. But if you, you know, there were things that Chilino did that were very, very out of order and didn't reflect well on the club at all. But I don't think, I don't think Leeds have ever been more of a shambles, certainly, and post the, the Ridge Steel leader when it when it all collapsed 
than they were at the point where GFH were, were trying to sell to Chilino. It was complete mayhem. You know, you just cringe, don't you? You know, you, and and you did at the time. Every single day of their self publicity was an embarrassment for the club, and it just got worse and worse. Why did that deal with, with the Saudis, who are now at Sheffield United? Why did Bates, do you know, or can you say, opt for GFH over that deal? I honestly don't know. It wasn't necessarily a money thing, you know, because he kept moving the goalposts anyway, so nobody really knew how much they were going to end up paying for the club because he changed his mind every week. I think ultimately it was the fact that there was someone like Haig or whatever, that, you know, it was more British GFH than dealing with a Saudi prince and his, his advisors. So, so with the Saudis, it was you know, 100% going to be Saudi-owned with a New York family financial planner who is now chairman or what he is, whatever he is at, at Sheffield United. So I don't know. I, I just imagine, and this is only me imagining, that you've got Ken sat in the Café de Paris thinking, well, you know, I'm talking to David Hay, I'm, there's a Brit involved with this. Or do I deal with these Arabs over here? And, you know, <laughs> I mean, we, we had yeah, we'd heard his thoughts about Arabs, quote unquote, hadn't we? In the in the program notes or on the radio, whichever. Yeah, so exactly. it's, it is funny though when you look at the various takeovers that have, have gone through the the number from the number that look on paper like they could be good that are shocking, and the number that look on paper like they might not be that great, but but ultimately go through. I think um, go through and, and and are half decent. I think with GFH, it was just hard to see in them anything that that meant that they were. They were suitable for it, especially because, like I said, they didn't come in and then start recruiting. You know, just to pluck a name from thin air, like Peter Kenyon, for example, or, or someone who'd, who'd been around the sport and, and knew the drill and, and was able to set set things up. And you know, even I remember when we first found out that GFH were doing it because they'd shown up against the uh, shown up to a game against Wolves at Ellen Road and been in the director's box, and we were given the names of Haig and um, Salim Patel. So. Started to Google them, you know, and to, to look at who they were, and, and there was a profile of David Haig on the GFH Capital website, which was the investment arm of GFH in Dubai. And right at the bottom, there was a line saying something on the lines of "And he is a lifelong Leeds United fan." And you look back now, and you think, on the one hand, that could have been entirely genuine. On the other hand, when was that added, and at what point did somebody fashion that into the profile so that when people stumbled across it eventually? They thought, oh, look, it's a Legion United support who's coming to, to buy the club. It was yeah. me who turned up that he was born in Salford. That's uh, right. Yeah. Uh, just just through Googling basic birth records, yeah. just found his, his date of birth from um, company's house records and then just checked it with um, the register of births. And I was like, this is not right. Grew up in Beeston. That's, don't remember. Anyway. You see, th- this is the thing with Radrazani, though, and you were mentioning, it would be good to talk about Otter, actually. Because, well, I was, I was just going to come yeah, on to that. Yeah, yeah, and because I, the I, contrast I, with now. I, I was just going to say quickly, Otter gets a bit of criticism. Kinnear and Radrazani come in for some criticism from time to time about certain things, but Kinnear has the background of having been at Arsenal and having been at West Ham and been involved in property. Um, Coca-Cola as well, was he? Yeah, so, you know, a, a kind of credible business background. You've had Victor, who's been at Sevilla, obviously, and Elche and Zenit St. Petersburg up at Middlesbrough and now into Leeds. So guys who, whatever you think about them or whatever errors they make from time to time, at least have proper football backgrounds. Otter interests me because he has obviously taken quite a lot of hammer in Leeds, or certainly did in the first season when the transfers weren't going going well. But any time I speak to club or an agent or anyone else who's who's properly involved in recruitment, they always talk about how good he is and always talk about how impressive he is and how knowledgeable he is. And you said that right at the outset of this that you think he's one of the one of the best recruiters around. He's usually impressive. 
Fortunately for us, you know, he's on our doorstep. So ignoring Leeds United, the, the good thing about Victor is, you know, he's got a massive passion, obviously, for the club, but for football in general, and his knowledge is second to none. So we've, we've got that added advantage of, you know, we, we may get offered a player. So, so quite often what happens... Uh, once you're established in the UK is, you know, the UK is the holy grail for everything from Africans to South Americans to whatever. So agents that have been dealing a long time in different territories tend to work with each other. So we, prior to any window, we'll get sent 20, 30 players for joint representation. They're good enough for England, blah, blah, blah. And once we filtered them out a little bit, you know, to give, to get a soundbite from Victor Orta is, tremendous because you know Victor will always respond he'll say why that player may not be good enough for whichever market you're looking at you know we're not offering them to Leeds United that's a different selection process frankly but it's incredible because he 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 can if you just sat with him so without him having to to fall back on data analysis generally speaking he'll know most of the players you're even talking about, you know, it's it's quite incredible, his knowledge of players. Have you ever been in his office where he's got all the magazines stacked all over the place, like just yeah. from all different countries? He was saying that there are some from Argentina, I think, or from Spain that he's never missed a, an issue on. He, he collects them avidly. But the first time I ever got to do a proper sit down with him, he was running me through his database of scouting reports and I mean there were just thousands and it thousands and thousands and I think it goes a bit unnoticed really the amount of work that that goes on and it's unfortunate that you do all that work and then ultimately your reputation hangs on the four or five players that you sign every window which clearly didn't work first time round but actually I think to a large extent over the last couple of years the recruitment's been pretty good. Yeah absolutely and I, and I think you've also got to you know he, he's always going to come into his own when he's got the right people around him as well. So when he made those earlier mistakes, he will have been under certain directives, you know, and budgets and everything else, you know. Um, but I, I always remember the first week that Victor arrived at Leeds United, a colleague in Spain had said, Victor just needs to know more about this club. You know, he's here and he's done everything he can do, but he's never really spoken to someone, mm-hmm. you know, apart from club officials. Will you go down to meet him at his hotel or whatever? And just giving me both barrels, you know, what it's like to be a Leeds fan, what it's like to live in the city of Leeds, everything else. You know, I met him that first week and I took him, I took him a, when City Talking did Do You Want to Win, you know, with the film. So we took him down like a commemorative box thing of that with the book, you know, and, and Moscow had written stuff, uh, you know. So, so I sort of gave him a package and said, you know, you can talk all, all you want and everything else, and it, but you need to go home. You know, have a look at this film, read some of Moscow's writings and everything else. And then, because I knew that Victor was into that, you know, he's really into memorabilia, he's into, he's into histories of clubs and everything else. And he did that, you know, and then a week later we met and he was getting fired up and he knew what it was all about. And, and he's done that not just with me. When he first came, he, he, he sort of searched out different people. So it wasn't just come in, get employed you know, yeah, it's another another job and I'll move off in a few years or whatever. It was right. I can really get my teeth into this. Yeah, that documentary I, I thought was great because it properly captured what you have to do to win promotion or win titles. And there was one point in it where Vinnie Jones was talking about the fact that McAllister had come in and replaced him. And rather than being bitter about it, he, he looked at McAllister and thought, you're a better player than me. So actually, if they're going to go on and do more um, in 
Division One, then I probably do need to go and you need to take my place and, and move on and, and everything else. And, and I remember the story from the time, because uh, it was just towards the end of the 16-17 season when it came out of Monk's players being really reluctant to go and see it. They'd been invited to Premier down at Everyman and at the time the form was going wrong. I think it was I think it was the week before the Norwich game when everybody had kind of thrown the towel in a bit and realised that they weren't going to get into the playoffs. And a couple of players up there were saying to some of the staff, you know, there's there's too much of a focus on history at this club. People talk too much about Wilkinson and too much about Reavy and, and what's going on in the past. But I did think when you watch that documentary, that's why you need to see it. And that's why you need to understand it because you have to understand in the way that Bielsa somehow has managed to do, even though he's come from like 7,000 miles away and knew nothing about the city. You have to understand what it is that it takes to drag this club up, particularly when you're dealing with, you know, 15, 16 years of abject misery and, and frustration. And and I thought I thought it told a story, the fact that some of those players were, were reluctant because I, I did feel that that was something that they, they should have embraced and well, should have thought this this is something we yeah. actually do need to see. Well, well we, we, we felt that, you know, and, we, and, we, and it wasn't just because we'd made the film, you know, that Lee had done a great job and, and we'd got the insight we wanted. You know, we wanted it to be how we felt. You know, as Leeds fans, and also Pride in the City, which we've got. And uh, it told a story that because, you know, there was an open invitation to the club officially to come down, do the red carpet, everything else. Didn't want anything to do with it. Berra bought a ticket himself, you know, and Berardi went to see it as a punter. We didn't even know he'd done it you know, until people started posting pictures of Berra downstairs, not in the VIP or anything, just coming to try and understand what it was all about. And then it was him. Better then told people what he felt about the film. And a week later, we were asked to arrange a private viewing for the squad. You know, so there was, there was a full viewing with the full squad, uh, under 23, everybody sat in there because they realised, not the import, I don't want to big it up that much, but, you know, rather than, you know, a series of goal shots and clips of, you know, this one, that one, and what's your favourite car and what food do you like to eat and all that shit, you know, it, it it meant something, and I and I, I think they got it in the end. But yeah, my favourite player, Berra, <laughs> was the one that, that opened that all up. And if he turns up to the um, training ground and says, "We're all going to watch this later this afternoon," <laughs> we're people, going. Do people just get on the bus, really, don't yeah, they? Yeah. What um, what do your players think of Bielsa, honestly? And I don't just mean as a coach because they must think he's phenomenal as a coach. But what do they think of the weeks of hard training and of mother ball and of how? knackered they must be from time to time and how hard the dieting is and the conditioning and everything else what's the sort of general feeling do about what, him do you know what it, it's it's like everything else in life in a way I feel somebody comes in and dramatically changes your workload the effort that is required the commitment that they want if you as an individual improve you're loving it if you don't improve you're absolutely hating it because what's been the point in, in all the sweat and the tears so right now, the answer is they're into it. They're having it because Jamie's where he is. I mean, for me, he should have had more game time, but that's me. That's I'm not Bielsa. He knows better than all of us. So I, we're all happy with that lot. What's happened is that all their their personal bests have been shattered in, in every aspect, whether it be sprint, whether it be long distance, you know, whatever it is, they've improved. And they've improved as footballers. So they'd be foolish to knock it, wouldn't they? they'd be foolish not to subscribe to it. How do they improve though? I think that's one of the things that we, we hear a lot from players who say Bielsa's made me better. But w- when we're on the outside, we don't quite understand what that translates into. So is, is it physical fitness? They often speak about on a personal level as well. How does he affect players? 
I think what he does is it, it gives a player far more awareness of what else needs to go into a game for you to be a better player. Positionally, for example, you know, you might be a fullback who concentrates on that one position thinking that if I, you know, if I make myself the best fullback I can be, then I'm going to be the best player I can be. My perception, this is only my perception, is that what he gives is a complete awareness of what needs to happen so that you, you can get those changes four or five times, you know, within a game that mean you've got to be thinking sharp, you've got to understand that, you, you know, you've just moved from wherever to wherever. But in the process of doing that for the 90 minutes, you've got a week of training that is showing you how you need to be to be that little bit better. So I think also his overall demeanour in terms of, you know, he gives quite a different aspect on life, doesn't he? You know, he, he, he's, he's seen to be a caring person and everything else, but he's not an arms round you and talk to every player for 20 minutes and, uh, and all the rest of it. So whether it's fantastic psychology or just genuine, I don't know. But when they get, certainly our players, when they get five minutes of appreciation from him, they're buzzing. You know, they, they literally will phone you and say, you said this all that to me. It's incredible. It's repetition as well, isn't it? It's, I, I've always found this interesting that to look at the players, they don't look like robots and they don't play like robots. It feels free and it feels uh, it's great to watch. But they're so drilled that they basically are robots. They can do exactly what he wants over and over again. And, and okay, sometimes it goes wrong like it does down at Palace, but then he puts them in a position where he says, we're minus Phillips, so I'll play strike there. We're minus um, both of them at Villa because strikes had to come off, so I'll just chuck Jamie and um, attack in mid and pull Cleek back. And, and you know, sometimes, it, it, sometimes it's pushed to the point where it's really difficult to have any sort of continuity. But when you watch them play and when you watch them, you can see that it's all programmed and you can only assume that that's two and a half years of just drill after drill after drill after drill and going through the same processes and really like consistent processes, like no break from tactics, no switching system, no kind of abandoning philosophy because it's not working. It just feels really, really straightforward in a lot of ways, actually. Yeah, and I think I think the only points at which he gets questioned by players or, or like with the Pablo situation is good in a way because it's never, I don't get this, you never hear grumbles about training shit or this, that, the other. All you get is, yeah, I thought I should get more game time or I want more game time. You know, they all want to play for him. That's mm-hmm. the point. So I don't mind that. If, that, if the negativity, in inverted commas, is people grumbling about not getting on the park, that's great news. You know, that's, that's what you want. How would him and Batty have rubbed along, do you think? <sighs> you know what? I don't know. Worst trainer in the world. So I, Maybe he would have changed them, though. That's the point. Do you know what I mean? He, he has that, that knack about him. That, that's exactly the point. I think if David felt he could genuinely make him a better player, he'd be all for it. And irrespective of what people think, he, you know, he's a big team player, David, as well. So if, if he saw the results going their right way to win, uh, I'm not talking about achieve medals and things like that. I'm talking game by game. He just wants to win a game. Then they'd be all right. But I think uh, it'd be hard work for Bielsa. What, what does what does worst trainer ever mean? What was he really like? 
I mean, it just, I mean, it's pretty well documented, isn't it? I mean, you know, Howard used to say that there were times where he'd just give him a bag of football and say, just go fuck off over there. And, <laughs> and I don't know if I can swear. Can oh, you can. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you've yeah. already done it. If, okay. if, if Wilkinson did, then you can, yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, um, yeah, yeah take that bag over there because you're contributing nothing. He'd just go <laughs> smash them balls about. So, and he'd do it. He'd be happy to do it. He'd just go and do it, you know. He didn't particularly like training. You know, he he wanted game time. He wanted to just play with a ball at his feet. And I always remember when Kenny took it and Kenny asked me if Howard was serious because Howard had said to him, just whatever you do, be careful when you, where you put a ball at his feet because he just likes to smash a ball about. And I don't know if you remember, they had the porter cabins at Blackburn at that time, believe it or not, as good as they were. You know, porter cabins, the dressing rooms before they came out with those porter cabins. And I think it was the, his first week there and he volleyed a, a football through the skylight in the port cabin, you know, just because it was there to hit. Yeah, I think at every level you've got one of those at the club, haven't you, that is one of your best players, but just walk train as, as well as the rest. Do, do you think football has room for players like that anymore? Because everybody's so highly strong and every, everything's so strict with how you condition yourself and how you train and it's all because of them. Um, Performance analysis now as well. It's all documented. Yeah. You know, you you can't kind of get a, get away with batty with a GPS vest. I know, I know. Yeah. But the, the mind boggles really. But do you think football is still able to tolerate that kind of personality and that kind of football? Because ultimately, he was a great footballer. Yeah, was batty, which which I guess should be the bottom line. Yeah, I, th- I think that's it. I mean, people talk don't they about the days of Gaza, for example, are over now. You know, you you, you just won't see another Gaza because the characters knocked out of them. At an early age, but I don't believe that for a minute. I think they are all individuals of all, all characters. Yes, they have to conform a little bit more now. Yes, they definitely have to be more athletic, um, and they have to be look after the bodies better. But you know, you've met them, Phil. You know, there's still some great characters in football, great characters, and and that's every dressing room's got one or two. Last one, then, and we'll wrap it up. I just want to know what it's like for you, as first of all an agent, but also as a fan. I mean, we're all essentially existing in Marcelo Bielsa's orbit at the minute. I want to know what that feels like for you. It's just incredible. Unfortunately, COVID has, has brought us to the situation that we've waited 16 years for it to happen and we and we can't be there and, and, and enjoy it ourselves. But for me, there was nothing that last season, sort of going to the away games with the Garfield Whites, you know, with my lad and, and, and you know, just, just being a part of seeing how we were not just tearing sides apart, but the sort of myths that were coming out around Bielsa and then suddenly the whole football world focusing on on Leeds and Leeds United, it just is fantastic. So, yeah, despite those recent defeats, he can do no wrong for me. I'm loving it as a Leeds fan. It's the perfect story, isn't it? It was the perfect story when, when it happened after such a long time. You wanted it to happen with somebody that you could relate to and invest in and, and remember for years and I always think when I go around Leeds there's nobody else around here with murals on the wall I know there's the one down at the underpass at Ellen Road which has the famous Wilco um, midfield on and and in fairness that was here before Bielsa but in terms of one individual you know it's his face up at um, High Park Corner it's it's him who's on the boxes all around the city and it's been a it's been an absolute phenomenon and I think in 20-30 years time you'll speak about it in the same way as we're speaking about it now Well I never thought as a Leeds fan of my generation, I'd be loving an Argentinian. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, Hayden, thank you so much for coming in. And it feels like we've barely scratched the surface there. There's Paris to talk about. There's, I mean, Bournemouth, we could probably do a show about that on its own, I think, at some point in the future, if you were allowed to talk about that. Yeah, yeah. I bet, you know, I'm winding it down. Andy's taking responsibility for the agency, so <laughs> I can talk about these things now. Well, thanks again. We, we must do it again sometime. Thank you for coming. It's been it's an absolute treat. Been a pleasure. Been great. Get involved with The Athletic, uh, theathletic.com forward slash leads pod to sign up for just a pound a week. At the minute, you can read everything Phil's been doing and listen to the podcasts ad free as well. We'll catch you next time. The Phil Hay Show.